We are in this series, It Is Written. We've taken a couple weeks, and, and again, my goal is to get you to fall in love with the Bible, to get you to love it, to learn it, to live it, to, to really let it just kind of reverberate every aspect of who you are, because it's powerful. Paul said it like this. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture, the entire Bible, is inspired by God, meaning that the word is alive, it's inspired, it's, it, God breathed into it, so, that, so the words themselves actually contain power, the power to bring that very word to fulfillment in your life, and I love this word, and it's useful, that's the goal, it's useful, like, like do you realize that this book is useful to your marriage, it's useful to your business, it's useful to your career, it's useful to your parenting. We don't want this to just be a piece of art you hang on the wall and you admire it. We want it to be useful, practical, something that, that you live with, something that works kind of in the everyday parts of your life. It's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses the Bible to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. God wants to prepare you, to equip you, to live out the life you were created to live. And he does that through his word. It's, it's kind of the owner's manual to our life. Week one, we talked about how this book is living, it's breathing, it's alive, and we want you to experience it that way. If you miss, missed week one, I encourage you to watch it online or listen to it. Very foundational. Last week, we kind of gave you an overview of how the Bible is put together. It's not chronological. It's put together in sections, and we put together the plot for you and kind of the mirror image of the Bible. Today, where I want to go is, is I really want to deal with a lot of the attacks that are coming against the Bible. Like we live in a culture today that the Bible and Christianity is being attacked like never before through movies, through media, through law, like movies like the Da Vinci Code trying to you know, convince us that, that the New Testament was written by the Catholic Church a couple hundred years after Christ so that they can manipulate people. My thought to that is they did a poor job. If, they, if, if that was their purpose, they didn't, they didn't do a good job at all. They could have written a lot better if they were trying to manipulate people because Jesus kind of taught against that. So it just kind of makes no sense they put it that way. Reminds me of how Anne Rice became a Christian. And, and really a lot of what we're going to talk about today kind of is summarized in her story. Anne Rice was a very, she's probably one of the most brilliant people alive today. She's a writer. She's a historian. She was a very well-known, outspoken atheist. Uh, she wrote all the interview at the Vampire Chronicles and, and writes all that stuff. But, but she's always prided herself, and she's always been regarded as a historian. All of her stuff is historically, even though it's vampire kind of graphic novels, it's all historically accurate, the background and the settings, just very very smart atheist, and she was always fascinated by history, in particular the Jewish people. Like, how did the Jews survive antiquity when so many other civilizations and cultures, we don't even hear about them anymore. How did the Jews survive antiquity? And so she was studying about the Jews, and she's reading Josephus, the Roman historian, and he's giving a minute-by-minute, moment-by-moment detailed account of the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed. And she's fascinated by this because this was the central figure, the, the central monument of the Jewish people. So she said to herself, I want to know more about the temple being destroyed. 
And so I'll read the New Testament. I'll read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel, because she was taught, like every good atheist is taught, that the gospel was written 200 years after Jesus Christ had lived. That's how the stories grew. Like Jesus didn't really walk on water. That's an urban legend. You take a story and you pass it on from generation to generation. The story grows and the legend grows and it, and it becomes exaggerated. And that's what she believed. So she reads Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's not one mention of the temple being destroyed. And she's, she, this is like boggling to her. Like, like why Jesus prophesies it? It would have validated Jesus. Why didn't they mention it? She reads the New Testament, not one mention of the temple being destroyed. She can't figure it out. The only logical conclusion she could come up with is maybe the gospel was written before the temple was destroyed. And if it was written before the temple was destroyed, these aren't urban legends. They're not myths. They're eyewitness accounts of what actually happened. Because here's the thing about it. The people that the Bible talks about were alive when the Bible was written. So if any of it was false, if any of it was made up, if any of it was exaggerated, it would have never survived the first century because the people who were there were alive when it was written and they would have shut it down. They would have discredited it if it was a lie. And so Anne Rice began to study all of this, this scholarship and all this academic work that, that was attacking and criticizing the Bible. And in her words, this is what she said. She said, I discovered the most biased scholarship I had ever read. It was assumption layered upon assumption layered upon assumption. There was no weight in any of the attack against the Bible. And she actually became a Christian because she couldn't figure out why, why do all these academic professors hate Jesus? They never even met him. Like they don't hate, you know, they don't hate the prophet Muhammad. They don't hate all these other historical figures who are much worse people. Like why do they have all this real passion and emotion and hatred for this Jesus if he's just a historical figure? And it actually led her to finding Christ. And so what I want to do today is talk a little bit about why the Bible can be trusted. Like you can trust the Bible, that it is accurate. It can stand up to any type of attack that comes. Jesus said this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, meaning the world's going to change. Like things are going to change. Like science changes, technology changes, you know, culture changes. Things change, but my word, my words will never pass away. So how do we know that Jesus' word is true? How do we know that it's accurate? How do we know the Bible is reliable? Well, it's a word called apologetics. Apologetics is people who study how to defend the Bible. They study the history of it, the science of it. Uh, they just study all the different facets of the Bible. And one of the great apologists of our time is a guy by the name of Josh McDowell. His son was a roommate of mine years ago at the Dream Center and so I got to know Josh and, and his son very well. He was in his son's wedding, and his son's now helping his dad write. His dad's one of the most famous apologists in America, written the most incredible books. He was actually an atheist, and one of his friends in college who was studying to be a lawyer challenged him, well, if you're an atheist, then go disprove Christianity. Like, you're going to be a lawyer? And he's like, well, I'm going to be a lawyer. If anyone can do it, I can do it. So he set out, took a year off from college, traveled throughout Europe, the Middle East, studying the history of it all, trying to disprove this kind of fairy tale he believed. 
And through the process of his research and his study, he actually found Christ. And now he took all of that research and put it together in one of the best-selling books of all time, More Than a Carpenter. He's got other books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict and New Evidence. So if, you, if, if this is your thing, you, like, you love like apologetics and defending the Bible, go to his website, josh.org. All sorts of great research, information, books there, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, great book to read. I'm giving you kind of highlights of it today, of, of some of the research I got from Josh and, and other people. But if, if, you, if this really kind of tickles you, then, then go dig into it some more. You'll really, really enjoy it. So what I want to do today, I'm going to give you seven reasons why the Bible is accurate. Seven reasons why you can put your trust in God's Word. Here's number one. First off, it is historically accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. This is for people who think, well, you know, there, there are a lot, of great, a lot of great principles in the Bible, a lot of good teaching in the Bible, but, but the stories, they're, they're made up. You know, they're, they're exaggerated. Like, that stuff really didn't happen. Like, I, I like some of what the Bible says, but you really can't trust all the stories because they're kind of out there a little bit. Well, actually, not at all. And the problem with that line of thought is history is proving otherwise. The more history discovers, the more archaeologists discover, the more historians discover, the more they prove the Bible, not disprove the Bible. See, they're not just great principles in the Bible. The Bible is also historically accurate. Psalm says it like this, for the word of the Lord is right, meaning like the principles are good and they'll work. It's good teaching, but it's not just right. It's true. Like, these are true stories. These are true events. These are historical facts that took place. Now, one of the ways we authenticate history is, is there's three tests that anything from antiquity has to go through. And it's not a Christian test. It's a secular test. Number one is there has to be eyewitness accounts for it to be verified. What you need to know about the Bible is the majority of the Bible is written by people who are actually there. Like Moses didn't just hear about the Red Sea. Moses saw the Red Sea part in front of his very eyes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are guys who were there. They interviewed the people who walked with Jesus, lived with Jesus. They were guys who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw the miracles. These aren't four guys sitting in a room together thinking, what are you going to put in chapter 12? Good, good, I'll put that in my... No, no, no. I mean, they wrote this independently of each other. None of it contradicting each other and verified through eye, the eyewitnesses to me is, is, is one of the greatest proofs of the Bible. You read the New Testament, the detail, like you read literature from the first century, like Greek literature, no detail at all. You read the New Testament, it reads like a John Grisham novel, like, like at two o'clock, the grass was green and Joe was standing over by the well. I mean, there's all these little details that you're like, why are they there? Because it was eyewitness reporting. You see, they didn't have like footnotes or a bibliography. They wrote the eyewitnesses into the story. That's why if any of it wasn't true, it would have never survived the first century. It's, it's fascinating when you study it out. The second thing is it has to be recorded and copied with extreme care. This is why I personally believe God chose the Jewish people to hold on to the Bible because they are the most meticulous group of people. Like you study the way the Jewish scribes did their job, Nobody in history worked the way Jewish scribes worked. 
they didn't just copy the Pentateuch, the first five books, the, the law, Moses' writing. They didn't copy it word for word. They literally copied it letter for letter. Like they knew how many letters would be on every line. You could go to the center letter and you could count out. And if they were off by one number, they would throw the entire thing away. Uh, after literally months of work, they'd throw it all away if they were off by a letter. They were meticulous. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1946 to 1956, it's the third oldest manuscript we have of the original Old Testament. It was written during the first century. It was perfect, like every letter on the line, perfectly placed. That's how meticulous the Jewish scribes were. And then the last one is there has to be archaeological confirmation. Well, that's the thing. More and more, like we were in Israel a couple of years ago, and every site you go to, I mean, archaeologists are still digging, and they're still discovering, and they're discovering more and more stuff. And the more they discover, the more they confirm all of this actually happened. Let me just give you one. The Hittite Empire in the Old Testament. We read a lot about the Hittites throughout the Old Testament. Uriah the Hittite, that was Bathsheba's husband that David had murdered, and, and, and the whole Hittite people. Well, for close to 1,900 years, from the time of Jesus up into just about 100 years ago, many historians, scholars, and even a lot of Christians believe that they were just made up because there was no, they, they couldn't find one trace of the Hittite people anywhere in the world. And all of our, like all the other peoples in the Bible have been discovered and cities and artifacts, but the Hittite people, they couldn't find anything until the late 1800s, early 1900s. They uncovered an entire city in Turkey. It was the capital city of the Hittite people. All sorts of artifacts, listing their country, their name, their nation, all sorts of stuff verified. The more archaeology discovers, the more we know the Bible is historically reliable and historically accurate. Not just is it historical, it is scientifically accurate. The Bible is scientifically accurate, meaning that God created the universe. So if God created the universe, God created the laws of the universe, the laws of science, the laws of medicine, the laws of nature, the laws of biology. They're all created by God. And here's the thing. The science of the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a science book, so it doesn't use scientific terminology, but there is a lot of science in the Bible. Here's what you need to know. The science of the Bible has never been contradicted, even when the science of its time period said otherwise. Meaning that when the Bible was written, there were held scientific beliefs. Like the people of the different time periods of the Bible had beliefs about science the Bible has never been contradicted, even though the beliefs of those time periods have been contradicted. Psalm 146 says it like this, 148, let every created thing praise, give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command and they came into being. Otherwise, everything came into being. He set them in place, all the laws of science, all the laws of nature, everything forever and ever, meaning the science of the Bible stands forever. It will not be contradicted. It will not be refuted. Even as, as science changes, you don't have to update the Bible. That's the thing. Like, I look at, you, know, you, you think about your third grade science book that you had when you were in school. None of it is in date anymore. Like, it's all out of date. Science changes so fast. So, hell beliefs change over time. But the thing is, the beliefs of the Bible have never changed, they've never been contradicted. Never been changed at all. The, in 1861, 
This is an amazing fact. The French Academy of Science published a journal. It was the 51 incontrovertible scientific facts that prove the Bible is wrong. Now, the only thing that has happened since 1861 is all 51 of them have been controverted. Like, they've all been like, oops, we were wrong. That wasn't right. That, that, that was wrong. That, was, that one was wrong, too. That's the only thing that's happened. So all of that to say the Bible is scientifically accurate. So let me show you some of the held beliefs that the people had when the Bible was written. Because here's the thing about the Bible. It's not just what's in the Bible that's significant. It's what's left out of the Bible. Because again, they were held beliefs when the Bible was written that were omitted from the Bible. Why? So that they never had to be contradicted. Let me show you a few of them. It was believed for really up until about six, seven hundred years ago, the earth was flat. It wasn't until, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1492, that we discovered that, wait a second, this place isn't flat. You're not going to fall off the edge of the world. The, the earth is actually round. Well, we discovered that about six, seven hundred years ago. Well, if we would have just read the Bible 3,000 years ago, we would have knew that. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. It's the, it's the word sphere, where we get the, the word globe. So if we would have just gone to the Bible, we would have known the earth isn't flat, it's round. See what I mean? There's science in the Bible that will stand the test of time. Here's another, here's another belief. The earth had to be held up. You know, that's, that's the Greeks believed Atlas held up the world. That's why you got that little guy holding the ball. The Hindus, this is a good one. The Hindus, during the time the Bible was written, believed that the earth was held by an elephant who is riding on the back of a serpent, who is riding on the back of a sea turtle swimming around the ocean. That's a fun belief for you right there. So that was believed during the time the Bible was written that the Egyptians believed the earth was held up by five pillars, like five pillars held up the earth. Now, now here's an interesting fact for you. Moses was trained in the school of the Egyptians. Remember? Moses was like a grandson to Pharaoh. Moses knew the science of the Egyptians. He knew the history of the Egyptians. He went to their schools. Moses was trained as an Egyptian, Moses grew up believing the earth was held up by five pillars, but somehow that's not mentioned in the Bible. Why? Well, if you go back to the first book of the Bible that was actually written, not chronologically speaking, not in our Bible, the first book was Job. Job tells us he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. How do you think Job knew that? Maybe Job didn't write it. That's how Job knew. Maybe somebody else wrote it through Job. Let, let me give you another fact. People during the time when the Bible was written believed the number of the stars could be counted. That you could count the number of the stars. There was a Greek astronomer named Hipparchus who about 50 years before Christ decided he was going to count the stars. And he counted all the stars and he said, we have exactly 1,026 stars in the sky. And that was a held belief during the time period of the Bible. That there's 1,026 stars in the sky. Well, about 50 years later, a, an astronomer named Ptolemy, who we still kind of regard today as one of the fathers of astronomy... He actually lived during the time of Jesus Christ. He came along and he said, Hipparchus is an idiot. He has no idea what he's talking about. There's not 1,026 stars in the sky. There's actually 1,056. He missed 30 of them. 
Well, we know today that they're constantly discovering new galaxies, new solar systems, new stars. They, they discovered a brand new planet this year. Well, if we would have just went to the Bible to 2,500 years ago, Jeremiah said the stars of the sky cannot be counted. Like, like there's too many of them. Again, the science of the Bible will not be refuted. Medical science during the time of the Bible. There was a guy named Hippocrates. He's kind of regarded as the father of medicine. Doctors take a Hippocratic oath. He developed what was called humoralism, and he believed that our bodies were made up of four things, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And, and our personalities and temperaments are made up of kind of the balance of those things, and if those things get out of balance, that's how you get sick. Well, one of the beliefs during the time when the Bible was written was too much blood made you sick. Like if you had too much blood, you would get sick. So they developed a medical procedure called bloodletting. Our first president, George Washington, died from bloodletting. Like, like he, he had a heart issue, and so the third time their bloodlet, they'd bleed him out. You know, they cut him and bleed him out. The third time he actually died. Well, we know now when you're sick, we don't take blood away from you. We give you blood. It's called a transfusion. Well, if we would have just read the Bible, Leviticus says the life of the body is in the blood. See, the life is in the, it's not too much blood that makes you sick. The, the life of yourself is in the blood itself. Study the Black Plague in Europe, the bubonic plague, Black Death, killed 30 to 60% of Europeans died during the Black Plague. Why? Because they had no concept of contagion. They didn't know that the virus could be passed from one person to another person. Well, again, if they would have just read the Bible, the priest will quarantine the person, talking about the sick person, for seven days. If you'll just kind of quarantine them and and get them away from everyone, you're all going to be okay. It's going to be fine. But again, they had no concept that, that these, these viruses and diseases could be passed from person to person. Now, why do you think all the authors of the Bible knew this amazing science? Well, maybe it's because they didn't write it. Maybe it's because God actually wrote it. The psalmist says of God, the words of the Lord are flawless. They're flawless. They're, they're never going to be refuted. The science of the Bible is never going to be contradicted, even though the science of its time has been. The word of God is flawless. It's like silver purified in a crucible or like gold refined seven times. Not only is it scientifically accurate, here's number three. It's prophetically accurate. Now, to me, this is a big one. This is the biggest risk of all in the Bible. I I want you to think about it. If the Bible was made up by men, If the Bible was not the very word of God and a bunch of guys just kind of made it up and put it all together, this right here is the biggest risk of the entire thing because there are over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. If any one of them did not come true, you would have had to throw the whole book out. So can you understand why this was the biggest risk? Not only is there a thousand prophecies in the Bible, there were over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ alone. And I'm not talking about like, you know, he was awesome. I'm talking about details about his life. Like he was born specifically in this city and his family had to flee to Egypt specifically. And he came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Here's a kicker for you. One of, one of our uh, Jewish friends who's kind of a Jewish evangelist of our church, he got saved through this one alone. David, King David in Psalm 22 prophesied 
the details, physical details, descriptive details of a crucifixion 800 years before it was ever invented. Think about that. 800 years before the Romans had even invented crucifixion, before anybody was dying that way, King David prophesied all of the details, all the, what would happen to your body physically and, and, and all the characteristics of crucifixion. I mean, it's incredible to think. And out of these 300 prophecies about Jesus, every single one of them has come true to the detail. Now, there's a guy named Dr. Peter Stoner about 40 years ago did a, did a research project called Science Speaks. And he invited 600 researchers and probability experts to get together, and, and they were going to study the probability of these prophecies. Probability is like the odds something will happen. If you have 10 tennis balls, and you paint one red, and you put them in a bucket, and you blindfold yourself, and you reach into the bucket, the odds are 1 out of 10 that you will pick the red tennis ball. So they wanted to do a, the study on these prophecies coming true in the life of one person. So, so here's the odds. If one person had eight of those come true about them, not, you know, so Jesus had all 300 come true about him specifically, the odds that, that just eight of them happened to one human being, the, it, it's one in 10 to the 17th power, or that number right there, I don't know what that number is, it's just like a lot, it's a, it's a zillion to a kid. Now, that number right there, if you had this many silver dollars, and you wanted to store them somewhere, You would take the state of California, you would fill the entire state of California up with silver dollars two feet deep. That's how many it is. Now imagine you paint one of those silver dollars red, you blindfold a guy in Arizona, you kind of, you know, put him in a helicopter, fly him over California. I mean, this state's big, people. I mean, it like to go from the top to the bottom, that's a long journey. And you fly this guy over California and says, just tell us when to stop. Now go down, pick out one, pick the red silver dollar. That's the odds that Eight of those happen in the life of one human being. It's incredible, isn't it? Look at the next one. That 16 happen, the odds are 1 in 10 to the 45th power, which is that number right there, a little bit bigger. If 48 prophecies happen to one person, like if 48 of them were fulfilled in the life of one person, that's 1 out of 10 to the 157th power or 1 out of that number right there. Do you understand that this is incredible? Like to think about that, that this was the biggest risk of the writers to put prophecy there because like it prophesied, prophesied Alexander the Great in the Old Testament. It described him. I mean, just so much happened perfectly. So the question is, how did it all happen? Like, how did they get it right? Like, how did all these, was it just coincidence that all these guys wrote out all this prophecy and all of it was fulfilled? no. For prophecy, 2 Peter says, never had its origin in the human will. Like, we didn't come up with it. Like, like man didn't pull this all together coincidentally, but prophets through human, though human, like these, these were humans that wrote it, but they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it didn't come from man, it came from God himself. That's why Jesus trusted prophecy. Jesus said, you can, you can trust prophecy. He says, this all is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets. Like it's all going to happen as recorded in the scriptures. 
Now, again, the scriptures isn't the New Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. He was talking about Old Testament prophecy, that it's all going to be fulfilled. And as of date, the majority of the prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled. Now, there are a few left yet to be fulfilled. And can I just say, you don't want to get caught on the wrong side of them being fulfilled. Let me just say that as nicely as I can. You read the book of Revelations. I mean, right now, this world is positioning itself perfectly for everything to take place in our lifetime, in our generation. And you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of those prophecies being fulfilled. Let me take you to the very last chapter in the Bible, Revelations 22. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. You can count on them. You can count on him. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So it's going to happen. So if you still believe it's coincidence, if you still believe like all these guys got together and somehow put together these prophecies and they just got it right, you got more faith than me. Let let me say it like this. It takes more faith to believe the prophecies of the Bible are coincidence than to believe that God planned them. Meaning it takes a lot more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. Like, like to be an atheist, you got to have a lot of faith to be an atheist. Because there's just too much that it's just so hard. You know, I mean, really coincidence? I, I just don't think so. So all of these stand on their own. Here's number four. The Bible is also thematically unified. Now, we dealt with this a lot last week. But let me say a couple things you would think that they would keep the theme intact if one person wrote it. Like if one person wrote it, that would be pretty easy to do. But again, the Bible had 40 authors over 1,600 years, 12 countries, three continents, three different languages. And yet not one contradiction. Like how how do they keep the theme intact? Look what Jesus said about the theme in Luke 24. He said, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures. Like he he took the entire Bible and he showed them the theme. And he said, the theme simply points people to me. It's all about me. It's all concerning who I am. That's why last week I said, when you read the Bible, I want you to go on a treasure hunt to find Jesus. Read the Bible, find Jesus, because Jesus is there cover to cover. He's in Genesis. He's all throughout the Bible. So let me give you a resource. If, If you want kind of a cliff note version of the Bible to help you kind of study and read the Bible as a resource tool. There's a lady named Dr. Henrietta Mears. She was one of Billy Graham's intercessors. She worked for the Billy Graham ministry. She wanted to write a book to help people understand the Bible, and she put together a book called What the Bible is All About. It's honestly one of the best books you'll ever read because she just wants to help, and you can get this on Amazon or Kindle. And basically what it is, is she wrote a synopsis of every book in the Bible. She gives you the cliff notes of every book in the Bible. And what is really, really cool is at the beginning of every chapter, she shows you where to find Jesus in each book. Like, here's Leviticus. Let me show you where to find Jesus. And so she highlights Jesus in every book of the Bible. So if if you like that stuff, encourage you to get it. Because here's the thing. There's no way all of these different authors over that long of time in that many languages, countries, and cultures can put together one document that is thematically unified. It's incredible. Here's number five. To me, this is the most important one, or at least it's my most important one. It's, It's really the only one I need out of all of these, and it's simply this. It's trusted by Jesus. Jesus trusted the Bible. 
Like, we live in a culture today where there's a lot of people that love Jesus. Like, I love Jesus. Like, love Jesus. Like, just give me love Jesus. Like, I love Jesus. Love, but, but I don't know about the rest of that book. Like, like I love Jesus, and he's a good man, and, and, I, and I love Jesus, but I don't know if I like the rest of the Bible. I mean, there's some stuff in there that's tough. I mean, there's some stuff in there that I don't know if I agree with it, and I don't know if I like it, but I love Jesus. Just, just give me some love, Jesus, but, but I just don't know about the Can I say it like this? You can't trust Jesus if you don't trust what he trusted. Because Jesus trusted this. Jesus trusted the Bible. Here's what Jesus says. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Like, it's all going to happen. It's all true. You can trust it, Jesus is saying. And I know we live in a culture today that's like, you know, come on, Pastor, this is 2016, and, you know, cultures change, and, you know, we like the Bible, but we just don't believe it like that anymore, and it's getting a little bit offensive in certain parts, and it's not, not, not quite, you know, accepted everywhere, and, and, and you know, we, we, we like Jesus, and give me all the love, but, but I don't know if I can really buy into all of that now. Can I just tell you? Don't change the Bible to fit into your culture. Change you to fit into the Bible. Culture changes. The Bible doesn't. And at risk of offending a few people, let let, let me put it like this. If you believe what you like in the Bible, but don't believe what you don't like, it's not the Bible that you trust. It's yourself. Like, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping you. Like, if you're picking and choosing, like, I like this, and I don't like this, and that's just too tough for me, and I don't really want to do that, but, 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 but this over here is good for me, you're worshiping. You might as well just write your own Bible and worship yourself, because it's not God that you're building your life on. It's you that you're building your life on, because, again, there's no way that all of this could be put together the way I'm showing you if it wasn't trustworthy, and there's a lot that I don't understand in the Bible. I still trust it. Like when I get to those crossroads, if I don't really get that all that much, I'm not going to change it to try to fit into me. I'm going to figure out where do I need to change to understand this because this can be trusted. I can't. I can't. Let me get, let me, this kind of leads into number six. Let me show you number six. It has survived all the attacks. Do you realize the Bible has survived every attack? First off, why is it being attacked? You ever thought about that? Like, why is the Bible so aggressively being attacked right now? Like, we see it in, in laws going on around America right now. We see it in culture. We see it in the world. We see it in movies. What? Like, no, no, there's no vendetta against the Quran in America that I've seen in the news. I mean, I don't know about you, but there's like, people aren't going after Buddhism and going after Hinduism and trying to kind of stamp them out in America. So why is the Bible and why is Christianity being so attacked? Well, maybe it's because there's an enemy that wants to keep it away from you. Maybe there's something going on with this. Look at this statement. The Bible, and this is true, is the most despised, the most derided, the most denied, disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book ever. And yet it still endures. Amen, Pastor. That's good preaching, whether you like it or not. I'll end me myself. I mean, think about that. I mean, think about this. 
Is there any other book that has been as attacked and hated and despised and tried to have been destroyed like the Bible, and yet it's still here? So if you agree with me, let's read this verse out loud together. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Listen, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. One of the smartest human beings that, that they say ever lived was the French philosopher Voltaire. I mean, he was so cool, he only needed one name. He actually had like 10 names, like Jean-Claude, blah, 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 Voltaire, and just, you know, just changed it to Voltaire. And people still regard him today. Well, here's a quote from Voltaire. Within 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. Voltaire. Can I say the only thing that has been forgotten is that quote? The Bible's still here. And you want some real funny God humor? Like, I, I love God sometimes because he's just got a sense of humor. When Voltaire died, the French Bible Society bought his home and moved their headquarters there. <laughs> That's God humor for you right there. So here's the question for you. What is going to be the final authority in my life, the word or the world? And I'm using that word authority intentionally because I know that's a word a lot of us don't like. Don't tell me I've got to have authority. I don't want anyone over me. Like, like I'm my own person. Like, no one's going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to be under authority. No. What's going to be the authority in your life? Is it going to be the word of God, or is it going to be the world? That was, what are you going to do when you get to something you don't agree with in here? See, you come to a crossroads. When you, when you read something in the Bible you don't agree with, now you've got to make a decision. Are you right, or is the Bible right? And I'm just telling you right now, I wouldn't trust in you all that much. You haven't been around that long. It's been around a long time, and it's withstood every attack known to man. If any book in the world should not exist today, it's this book. With as much as it has been attacked and it has survived. So when you come against something that you don't necessarily agree with, then you've got to make a decision. Someone's going to change you or it. Like you're going to try to change it to fit what you want it to say, or you're going to change you to line your life up with it. And I'm just telling you, don't change it, change you. Change your life to get in agreement with God's word. Now, as we get into this last one, uh, let me say about this last one that all of these up until now, like historians and, and scientists, and, and you know, there's all sorts of like proof. This last one, you've got to do the experiment yourself. Like, this last one is all about, like, like, I can give you kind of a lot of logic and intellect, but I've saved this one for last because this one has nothing to do with logic and nothing to do with internet intellect. This is all about you experimenting. This is all about you having to prove this last one. And, and this is partly why, as a church, I tell you every year, take the one-year challenge. Like, take, take, take a one-year experiment. Do a one-year experiment with your life and go all in. Like, do it all. Read the Bible every day. Pray. Get involved in connect groups. Show up on Sunday when the Bible's being taught. Find your place to serve in the house and the body. Like, like do it all. Like, do the one-year experiment. And if your life isn't better in a year, then my commitment to you is I'll leave the church with you. And we'll go find another church because obviously we don't know what we're doing. But the reality is when you take this experiment, it'll prove true. Just like all the other kind of the scientific and the historical, all those experiments have proven true. This one will prove to be true, but it's what you have to do on your own. And it's understand that this book has transforming power. Like this last one is not something that you can intellectually figure out. It's something you can only experience. Like you've got to experience the transforming power of God's word. It's got to come alive to you. It breathes life inside of you. 
and it's something that becomes very powerful, powerful in your life. Look at the way Jesus says it here. Jesus said, if you, and I love this word here, hold. Hold. Think about that word for a moment. If you hold to my teaching. Let me ask you a question. Does that describe your relationship with the Bible? Would you use the word hold to describe your relationship with the Bible? Or would you use, like, like I try to fit it into my schedule? Like, I try to fit in the Bible every day, you know, like, I try to, I try to make time for it. Like, it was a busy day, so I didn't really have time for it in the morning, so I'll try to squeeze it in before bedtime. Is that your relationship with the Bible, or would your relationship, would you kind of fall in this category? Like, I want you to think about the way, the, the very intentional word that Jesus is using here to describe a relationship with the Bible. If you hold to my teaching. It's not a convenience thing. It's not a, when I got time for it, or I'll try to squeeze it into my day, or I'll, I'll try to find time for it. No, no, no. It's a hold to my teaching. And only you know if that describes your relationship with God's word. But look what he says. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Again, it's not about being a Christian. It's about being a disciple. See, the thing about the word Christian is there's no definition for it anywhere in the Bible Meaning, you can make being a Christian anything you want to do. You can read the Bible once a week and be a Christian. Like you, you can literally do anything you want to do and be a Christian because there's no definition. But if you want to be a disciple, that's another level. Because being a disciple is spelled out. See, disciples are people who hold to his teaching. See, the teaching holds them. They're building their life on it. Look at the last half of the verse. Now, this is where it really gets good. Then, then, what, what does the word then mean? Then means if you do the top half of the verse, you get the bottom half. That's what the word then means. Like you, you can't get the good stuff if you don't do the top half. Like we all want the bottom half because it's good. Like God, give me all this stuff. Like give me the good stuff, God, but don't ask me to do the hard stuff. Like just give me all that good stuff. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. Then. Then, meaning, if you've done the top half, the second half becomes the result in your life. Then you will know the truth. In other words, God's word, the truth of God, gets wrapped up into every area of your life. Like you get it wrapped into your marriage, you get it wrapped into your business, wrapped into your finances, wrapped into your parenting. Like the truth gets, gets so ingrained in every area of your life. And look what happens, that truth. Those principles ingrained into your life sets you free. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't need to be set free. I mean, I am free. Like, I can wake up tomorrow and do anything I want to do. Like, I mean, I live in America. I, I, can, I can quit my job tomorrow if I want to. I can go surfing at the beach tomorrow. I can go up to the mountains if I, I... I'm free. I can do anything I want to do. Well, if you're so free, why don't you feel like it on the inside? See, being free just doesn't mean you have freedom of choice. A lot of you have freedom of choice, but are you happy? Like you've got all the freedom in the world, yet why do you feel like you're just spinning your wheels? Like why do you, why do you wake up every morning thinking to yourself, is this all there is? Like is this really what I'm living for? Like this? Like, like there's got to be more to life than just this, what I'm experiencing. Well, there is more. 
and you find it in freedom. Freedom to live passionately. Freedom to be excited when you wake up every morning. Freedom to do what God created you to do. Freedom to live life to the full. To enjoy every moment that God has given you. That's freedom. How do you get there? You got to hold to his teaching. You got to hold to his teaching. See, my desire for you as your pastor is that this describes your relationship with the Bible. That the Bible is something you hold to. It's not something you make time for. It's something you hold to. Because there's powerful things that take place. See, I want you to experience the then. I want you to get to the then in your life where, where then, man, you get the good stuff. Then you find out what it really means to live. You find out what it really means to, to have significance and purpose and passion. I'm telling you, it's good. It's good. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me just for a moment? One of the great steps that every one of us have to take to get to this place is it's called surrender. Surrender. See, Christianity will confuse you sometimes because we're talking about freedom. And how do you get to freedom? Will you surrender? Well, if I surrender, I become a prisoner. That's confusing. No. Actually, when you surrender and become a prisoner to Jesus, you actually become free. I know it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're like, well, if I serve Jesus, he's going to take all the fun away. No. When you surrender to Jesus, that's when life really gets good. I mean, you can have all the freedom this world offers you, but it's empty. That's why you feel like you're spinning your wheels. That's why you feel like there's got to be more to life than what I'm currently experiencing. I just don't know how to find it. I'm telling you how to find it. It's in Jesus. And it starts by surrendering your life to him. And only you know whether you're living a surrendered life to Jesus. Only you know. But as we do every Sunday, I want to invite you, if you're ready to cross that line, if you're ready to say, okay, you know what, it's time. It's time. I need to surrender to Jesus. Some of you, this, this might be your very first time in a Christian church ever. I'm inviting you to surrender your life to Jesus. You may not even fully understand what that means right now. That's okay, because it's got to be a step of faith anyways. But there's something resonating in your heart right now that's saying to do this. And you feel it. That's, that's God's spirit drawing you to himself. And then there's some of you here that you're just kind of going through church motions, going through Christian motions, kind of playing games with God. Like, I need a little bit of God because I don't want to get too far away from him. So I'm going to give a little bit of God because I need some, you know, we call it fire insurance. Like, like I need some God for when the fire happens. Like when bad things happen, I need, I need to know I can run to God. And you know what? God is always going to be there for you. But wouldn't it be better to have him every day and not just when you need him? Wouldn't it be better just to be in relationship with him constantly and to live that surrendered life for him? I'm telling you, it's powerful. It's powerful. So let me pray with you. So those of you that want to take that step and surrender your life to Jesus today, I'm going to pray with you. You don't need to stand up. You don't have to pray anything out loud today. This first prayer can be your heart to God. Just so that I know who's joining me this morning, with nobody looking around, would you very quickly just raise your hand so I know who's joining me in this prayer just right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate those hands. Thank you. You can put them down now. 
The prayer is very simple. Just in your heart right now, say, Jesus, today I surrender my life to you. I don't know fully what that means, but I'm taking a step of faith. And I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me encourage you to do one more thing today. And this is something you do on your own. But that prayer you just prayed reflects one of two decisions. It either reflected I'm committing my life to Christ like I just gave him my life for the first time. Or it reflects I'm renewing my commitment. Like I needed to really make it real today. I really renew that commitment to him. Would you let us know what decision you made today? It's the greatest decision you'll ever make before you die. We want to know so we can pray for you. Like, it, like we want to pray God's blessing over the journey that you're on. We'll also send you an email with just some next steps of what it means to hold his teaching close. And then you can take that email and do what you want with it. The ball's in your court. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you as we sang earlier today. Your word is unfailing. It will never fail us, God. It has stood the test of time. It has withstood every attack, every criticism. And it is still here, God. We can build our life on your word. God, but more than than all the intellect and the logic and the fun history and the fun facts that we discovered and learned today, God, that last point, the transforming power of your word, that's what we desperately need more than all the other. We don't want to just intellectually defend the Bible. We want to experience it personally. And so I pray that people would leave today, God, inspired, feeling a, a bit more safe and secure in the Bible, but more than that, with a passionate pursuit to experience the transforming power of it in a very real and personal way. In the name of Jesus, amen.